All right. Glad you can make it. So tonight we have a special guest tonight. Jamar Tisby is the president of the, uh, the Witness, a black Christian collective, co-host of, uh, of the Pass the Mic podcast. If you've ever listened to that, it's brilliant. Uh, he's a Ph.D. candidate uh, in, in history at the University of Mississippi and the author of the book Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Uh, I encourage you to follow him on Twitter, at Jamar Tisby. Simple, simple as you get. Uh, so his, uh, his writings have been featured in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, CNN, Vox, uh, New York Times. He's spoken nationwide at conferences on racial justice, U.S. history, uh, and the church. And, uh, and he happens to be here today at Watermark, Tampa. Please welcome, great round of applause for Jamar Tisby. This little light of mine, sing it if you know it, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Mm-hmm. This little light of mine, Lord, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Yes. Given the topic and Black History Month, that's how I like to start in music. But I see, Pastor, you got some soul. I definitely appreciate that. And I'm glad we can start with smiles because it's going to be a challenge unfortunately, to remember joy and to remember laughter given the topic this evening. It was September 15th, 1963. Four little girls were getting ready for the Youth Day Sunday service at 16th Street Baptist Church. Their names were Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. They were in the church basement making final adjustments on their white dresses, and that's when the bomb exploded. The dynamite left a hole in the floor five feet wide and two feet deep. It decapitated poor Cynthia. Her parents could only tell it was their little girl by the shoes she was wearing and the ring on her finger. Of course, in the wake of this tragedy, this act of racial terrorism, for that's what it was, the the, the nation was outraged. Not just people in the city or the state or even the country. It was an international outcry. Even staunch segregationists denounced such a horrendous act. There was a lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. who had been scheduled to give a talk to the Young Men's Business Club of Birmingham. And in the wake of the tragedy, he still gave his talk, but he changed the content a little bit. He talked about this act of racial terrorism that had just occurred in the city, and he asked this group of young white businessmen, power brokers in the city, many of them Christian, he said, who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro or a white? The answer should be, we all did it. 
He said it was every little individual who talks about the niggers and spreads the seeds of his hate to his neighbor and his son. The jokester, the crude oaf whose racial jokes rock the party with laughter. Then Charles Morgan Jr. turned his attention specifically to the church. And he said, did those ministers visit those families in their hour of travail? Did many of them go to the homes of their brothers and express their regrets in person or pray with crying relatives? Do they admit Negroes into the ranks of their church? I begin the book, The Color of Compromise, with this story. Because when we think about racism, we, think, we tend to think about the extremes. We tend to think about the people who would plant dynamite at a church and kill four little girls. We think of the people who burn crosses and put on white robes and hoods to terrorize the black community. And there were those people, to be sure, and they wreaked havoc in the nation. But numerically and quantitatively, it was a smaller number. The reality is that the vast majority of Christians, particularly white Christians in the U.S. context, weren't the ones actively going out and committing these acts of racial terrorism, but they allowed it to happen. What Charles Morgan Jr.'s speech does is demonstrate the idea of complicity and compromise with racism. So there are lots of ways to acquiesce to racism. Some of it is active, but oftentimes it is through our silence, our passivity, our apathy, and our inaction that we can promote racism too. The reality is that the most egregious acts of racism, like a church bombing, occur within a context of compromise. And so that's what this is about. Do I have the iPad to advance the slides? All right. You can do the next slide. Oh, it's on the phone. It's fancy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Wow. That's super fancy. <laughs> Let's see if that works. There we go. So... A lot of times, what I'm surprised is, you know, sometimes people will ask me why the title of the book, why the color of compromise. But one question I'm surprised I don't get more often is, what is the color of compromise? And so, I mean, it could be anything, right? It could be purple. It could be plaid. It could be periwinkle. <laughs> is anyone wearing periwinkle? I promise you, I don't know what that color even looks like. I just know it's a color. But I don't get that question very often, but that's a question I want to answer this evening. What exactly is the color of compromise? And I'd like to propose to you tonight that the color of compromise is at least three colors. The color of compromise is white. For white supremacy that tells a story of racial difference that places white people on the top or in the center and all other people of color, especially black people, at the bottom or on the margins. The color of compromise is green 
green for the greed of slave traders and plantation owners and the countless people who benefited from race-based chattel slavery and profited financially off of black labor. And the color of compromise is red. Red for the blood that was spilled in maintenance of greed and white supremacy to reinforce these ideas and ideologies, which always ultimately resulted in violence. So before we get going further, I want to say this is the beginning of a conversation. And if you want to learn more, here are just a few ways that you can do that. So number one, uh, I do a lot of ranting and raving on social media. So if you want to see that, Twitter and Instagram, both at Jamar Tisby. Two, we have a couple of websites that I would invite you to visit. And this is going to be one of the few times as a speaker where, where you actually have permission to get out your phone right now. That's fine. I don't mind. Uh, visit thewitnessbcc.com. We have literally hundreds of articles from black Christians and advocates and allies across the racial and ethnic spectrum on a variety of topics. Also, my own website, jamartisby.com, has some more of the historical content. I also have a couple of podcasts. One is called Pass the Mic. I co-host with Tyler Burns. Right now, we are doing a series called Can I Get a Witness? And we tackle the witness of history, the witness of black preaching, the witness of black love, all of these different topics, which I think you'll find very informative. I also have one podcast that I do solo, which is called Footnotes. You can download these and remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, this is a new initiative called the Witness Foundation. We just announced this in October of this past year. What we're endeavoring to do is to raise a million dollars to start an endowment. We'll use the interest off of that endowment to fund black Christian ministries. We can talk more about this in the Q&A, but I invite you to visit thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co for more information and as a way to get involved in racial justice right now. So, also want to thank Pastor Tommy and the team. Thank you, Watermark Church, for having me. I consider this an honor and a privilege, and I appreciate the opportunity. With that, let's get started. The color of compromise is green. I want to start with a quote by a minister and abolitionist who lived in the 1800s named James W.C. Pennington. And he said this, the being of slavery, its soul and its body is the chattel principle, the property principle, the bill of sale principle, and the cart whip, the starvation, the nakedness are all its inevitable consequences. And so many people say that slavery was America's original sin. I think it might be more accurate to say that slavery was America's original symptom and its original sin was greed. Think about it. In a capitalist economy, what's the goal? To maximize profit and minimize loss. If you've ever been in charge of a budget or even just seen one, you know that typically the greatest expenditure is on personnel. It's wages and salaries and benefits. And so what's the best way to save money in a budget? 
is to decrease those wages and salaries and benefits. Better yet, don't pay your labor at all. That is fundamentally what happened in race-based chattel slavery. This is a particular kind of slavery that is race-based. We'll talk about that later. But chattel, that's what J.W.C. Pennington is talking about. Chattel means property. Chattel slavery turns a person into property. A human being into a material asset valued only for their labor and their production. Now, this is not to say that racism as an ideology did not exist before slavery or during slavery or after. People don't need any excuse to hate other people. That's what's happening. But the question is, why was slavery so enduring? Why did it take America's bloodiest war, till to this day, America's bloodiest war, to finally emancipate black people? It's because there was money to be made. There was profit to be had. That's why the Mississippi Articles of Secession, the the document that states the reason why Mississippi removed itself from the Union and became part of the Confederate States of America, it says this, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. The greatest material interest in the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce on the earth. You hear all this chattel principle and property principle and profit principle in there? Yes, sir. So don't let anyone ever tell you that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. A lot of people say, oh, it's about states' rights, to which I say, yes. But the state's right to do what? (laughs) To own human beings. And this is fundamentally what race-based chattel slavery was. It was an exploitative economic system that profited off the labor of black bodies. The chattel principle is why, during the slave trade, ships looked like this. Most ships weren't originally built to transport hundreds and hundreds of people. They had to be retrofitted. And so when they were doing the redesign, do you think they had the comfort of the passengers in mind? No. They didn't consider them passengers. They considered them property. So they stacked them side by side, squeezed them together, one on top of another. And they counted on some attrition. They counted on some loss of product, meaning they counted on human beings dying. As you study history, certain random facts stick out to you. Just, you're not trying to remember them, but you do. One of those facts for me is, is that sharks used to follow these slave ships because when people died, there was no place to put them, and they just dumped them overboard, and the sharks got a free meal. Christians were complicit in the greed that solidified and perpetuated race-based chattel slavery. Greed even motivated people to separate families. So this is Olauda Equiano, 
He was kidnapped from the area now known as Nigeria. He was part of the Igbo tribe. He was about 11 years old, and he had a sister, and they were both kidnapped. Later, he wrote a narrative of his experience in a genre called the slave narrative, and he wrote this. The next day proved of greater sorrow than I had yet experienced. For my sister and I were then separated while we lay clasped in each other's arms. It was in vain that we besought them not to part us, but she was torn from me and immediately carried away while I was left in a state of distraction not to be described. I cried and grieved continually, and for several days I did not eat anything but that which they forced into my mouth. And then Equiano, who later became a Christian, wrote this about the people who separated families and called themselves Christian. He said, O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you this from your God? Who says unto you, do unto all men as you would men should do unto you. You see, black Christians saw through the hypocrisy of somebody who said that a person was property. But they didn't reject Jesus. They had rejected this Christianity or this version of Christianity that dehumanized black people. I want to give you one more quote by a historian. I think it's just chilling in its directness. He says, cynical though it may sound, it is not an exaggeration to submit that the critical fact in determining who opposed slavery and who supported it was a consequence entirely of political and economic factors. All of the Christian conviction in the world could not dent the purse of one slaveholder. In the book, I write that the only other R word more controversial than racism is the word reparations. But understanding the nature of race-based chattel slavery and the chattel principle, I don't think we can have a serious conversation about racial justice unless it includes money. The fact that many of our institutions, including seminaries and actual churches, were built off the wealth of enslaved black labor. Not only that, it wasn't just about slavery, it was about what happened after that. On into the 20th century, black people excluded from the GI Bill, one of the major legislative works that created what we know as the middle class nowadays. Black people excluded from unions and couldn't advocate for better working conditions and higher salaries. Black people excluded from promotions in certain offices in corporations and industries. This is what happened. They fought the Civil War, emancipated black people, but that dream of 40 acres and a mule never came to fruition. General Sherman issued field order number 15 that gave a swath of land on the East Coast to recently freed black people. And just as they were about to start building lives, land meant that you could raise your own crops and feed your family and perhaps sell something and gain some economic independence. Just as that was starting to become a reality, it was snatched away through a legislative procedure. And now you have three million recently freed black people who exchanged the physical chains of slavery for the chains of generational poverty. 
can't have a serious conversation about racial justice unless we talk about economic justice. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you actually don't have to wait on the government to act. Churches and believers and groups of people can take action themselves. The color of compromise is green. But the color of compromise is also white. One of the themes in the book is that racism never goes away, it just adapts. As long as this idea of white supremacy exists, racism and racial inequality will remain. Why? Because racism is based on this underlying story of white supremacy, or as my friend Daniel Hill writes in his book, White Awake, white supremacy is the narrative of racial difference. In other words, it's the story we tell ourselves about color, about race, about different people groups. And so what happens is you have, broadly speaking, three major manifestations of racism. Race-based chattel slavery, which is in many ways sort of the most overt and obvious form of white supremacy. After the Civil War, Jim Crow segregation comes in to reify and replace an old system, but still the same old white supremacy. And even today, after the gains of the civil rights movement, I would argue along with Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their book, Divided by Faith, that we are living in a racialized society where in so many of life's most important factors from health to education to, to life expectancy and infant mortality falls along racial lines still. The question is, even though these manifestations constantly change and morph, why is it still there? It's because underneath it is this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy. And so, white supremacy or whiteness, I think, does a few things. It obscures identity. It creates this other category called blackness, and it maintains power through violence. Let me talk about the first two. So number one, white supremacy obscures ethnicity. And by this, I'm talking mainly about white people. So what happens when Europeans cross over from Europe to North America is that they trade in their ethnicity for their race. So you cease to be French or German or Swiss and you become white. And there's a trade-off there. There's financial currency, but there's also cultural currency. And then the United States, being considered or categorized as white, had cultural currency. It opened up to you pathways and privileges that were closed to other people. But what did you lose? You lose a sense of national and ethnic heritage. So, so, so there's, there's a history, there's architecture, there's art, there's clothing, there's music, there's food that comes with an ethnic identity. Things that can be celebrated and redeemed and grasped onto. The problem is when you latch onto whiteness, you automatically and necessarily latch on to anti-blackness. 
And so when I was in seminary, this strange thing would happen. I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, but it was a non-denominational seminary that drew people from all over the country. And these white guys would come in from like Minnesota and Ohio and California and these other places. And within about a semester or two, all of a sudden, they had grown these like goatees, like, like the KFC colonel, right? <laughs> Suddenly, they started wearing bow ties and seersucker suits. And I was like, what is happening? You are not from the South. What is this? What I think was happening is that they found a kind of cultural identity. And they latched on to some of the aesthetics of that cultural identity. The problem was that cultural identity was based on white supremacy because it's based on whiteness. You follow me? So I think one of the things that white folks need to pay attention to and be cognizant of is recovering an ethnic identity over whiteness. Now, a lot of people will hear me and say that there's something wrong with white people with white human beings. I'm talking about the ideology of whiteness, the idea of the centrality or the superiority of that which is considered white. You with me? This is advanced stuff. I don't know if you came looking for the 101 class. <laughs> That's down the hall, all right? Now, the second thing whiteness does, I've referred to it briefly, is it creates this category of blackness which is automatically considered other and inferior. And you get this in all kinds of subtle ways, right? So when I was in seminary, every class we took was just theology until we started talking about black theology or Latin American theology. And in the subtle labeling, what you get is the fact that this is other. This is non-standard. And what so often happens in implication is that it is substandard. That's the implication. So it creates this, equal, this, this opposite category of black, but do you know that to the degree that you are willing to assimilate to white cultural standards, you can begin to engage in the privileges of whiteness? Not completely, because you're too dark, but if you change the way you speak, the way you dress, the way you act, you know this happens a lot in churches, right? where you have to sort of check your culture at the door. Oh yeah, we want everybody, but guess what? You better walk like, talk like, sing like, think like, preach like us. And there are different groups, right? I could tell you stories, I don't have time, ask me later. But always, you know, there, there's a hierarchy where you can class Asian people and Latin-descended people, and Native Americans in different groups based on how one identifies personally or how the world sees you. And you can get closer to that center. But always, always, the opposite of white will be black. So here's another advanced-level lesson for you. It is very trendy nowadays to say people of color. I understand that. There's a lot of diversity. But never forget the particularities of each people group. Some people understand, yeah. 
is Black History Month and I'm black, so let me just say about black people, right? Black people and people of color are not synonymous, right? There's a unique history, particularly in the United States, around black people and what it means to be black. Of course, the obvious, right? Race-based chattel slavery and all of its legacy. But don't be afraid to focus on particular groups because every particular group has its own history, its own culture, its own unique story. To lump everybody together actually, I think, does a disservice. It's not that we can't ever refer to people of color, but let's also remember the distinct stories and, and cultural locations that we have. You with me? All right. We, we, we just warming up. You don't know. I got a few ameners in here. I appreciate you, Pastor. I just, I, just want to, I just want you to know that's okay tonight, all right? This is, this is the cultural competency here, all right? Now, I'm talking about this thing called, called, called whiteness, and the color of compromise is white. What does that have to do with Christians? Well, well, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Ku Klux Klan, perhaps the, the most visible manifestation of, of, of white supremacist group, actually had three different iterations. And so the first was right after the Civil War, for obvious reasons, they wanted to re-inscribe white supremacy in a post-race-based chattel slavery world. The third manifestation was during the Civil Rights era, again, for obvious reasons, they wanted to push back against black civil rights in the movement for justice. But the second iteration was, was perhaps the most widespread and violent. It occurred in 1915. What happened in 1915 was a couple of things. Number one, this, this movie called Birth of a Nation came out. It was a three-hour-long silent film that depicted the rise of the KKK, but it did so in a glorified way. I could tell you the stories, you should view the clips, but basically what they were saying was the KKK was this group of noble white men who rose up to defend white women from rapacious black men and from northern carpetbaggers, and that they reluctantly entered into the fray in order to take back the South, yes, for the white man, but also for the good of society. That film was the first film ever shown in the White House. President Woodrow Wilson was in office at the time, and he called it like writing history with lightning. Mm. That film catalyzed a white former Methodist circuit writer. In other words, an itinerant preacher. He got a group of his white male friends, and they go to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia. At the top of Stone Mountain, or on the front of it, are three figures from the Confederacy, Generals Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. So on Thanksgiving Day, 1915, they go to the top of this mountain and they do a couple of things. Number one, they borrow a tradition from Scotch-Irish lore, and they put up a cross and they burn it. The other thing they do is they build an altar, and on the altar, they place two items. One is an American flag. The other is a Bible. The Bible was open to a passage in Romans that says, treat one another with brotherly love. Now, 
what we see here is a couple of things. You see the intersection of race, only white people allowed, of religion with the Bible and the cross and the altar, and of this perverted form of patriotism that says America is truly America when white Christian men are in charge. As long as that hierarchy is in place, the nation's good. As soon as these other folks start getting their rights and equality, we got a problem. Now, this sounds old, but there's an article that came out a week ago by two sociologists that describe white Christian nationalism. They define it this way. Christian nationalism is an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. They go on to describe it. It says, Christian, in this sense, represents more of an ethno-cultural and political identity that denotes a specific constellation of religious affiliation, evangelical Protestant, cultural values, conservative, race, white, and nationality, American-born citizen, Samuel L. Perry and Andrew L. Whitehead. So a lot of times in the news today, you're going to hear this talk about the rise of nationalism. I think we need to add something to that. It's white Christian nationalism oftentimes. And we have to understand what that looks like because the color of compromise is white. But the color of compromise is also red. I warn you in advance, I'm going to talk about a lynching. It's violent, it's bloody, and because of this, oftentimes we're tempted to look away or avoid this topic. But a moment ago, I mentioned two effects of white supremacy. One, that it erases ethnicity. Two, that it creates this opposite category of blackness. But there's one more effect of white supremacy. White supremacy says that in order to maintain power, in order to maintain control, that violence is necessary. Physical violence has always been necessary for the maintenance of white supremacy. There's a quote from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, that I think captures this idea well. He says, it's hard to face this, but all your phrasing Race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth, and you must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. You see, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness. And you know that the the image of God can be defaced, but it can never be erased. And so what happens with an oppressed people is that when they get subjugated, there is the fingerprint of God upon them that says, I shouldn't be treated this way. 
I'm just as human, just as worthy as you are. And so they start to resist. But greed and white supremacy says you have to stamp down that resistance and use violence if and when necessary. So, as with many of these instances, we don't know all of the details. What we do know is that it was 1904 in Sunflower County, Mississippi. There was a man named Luther Holbert who was a black sharecropper. He was in love with Mary Holbert, another black person. There was another black sharecropper who also loved Mary, and they got into this argument, Luther and this other black sharecropper. It got so bad that the other black sharecropper brought in the white plantation owner. And so the white plantation owner and this other black sharecropper go to Luther Holbert's cabin. We don't, again, know exactly what happened. It may have been a matter of self-defense, but what, what ended up happening is that this other black sharecropper and the white plantation owner ended up dead. Now, if Luther Holbert had killed just another black sharecropper, he might have been fired, perhaps arrested. But since he killed a white man, and not just a white man, a rich white man, it was an automatic death sentence. And so Luther goes on the run with Mary. The white posse comes after them, and for three days they hide in swamps. Mary even dresses up as a man to disguise herself, but eventually the bloodhounds and the posse catches up to them. But here's the thing. They didn't kill them right away. They waited for a particular day, a Sunday, when they knew people would be off of work and coming out of church. And they didn't conduct the lynching in just any place. It could have been a random field or a town square, but they chose the, the spot for the lynching strategically. It was on the grounds of a black church. Why a black church? Because for centuries, the black church had been the ark of refuge for black people, the place where black people didn't need to be called boy, but be called sir. They could be called pastor or church mother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so they conducted this lynching on the grounds of a black church to inflict maximum terror. It was as if to say, not even God can protect you. They didn't kill them right away. They tortured them. First, the murderers cut off each of the fingers and toes of their victims and handed them out as souvenirs. Sometimes I have this sort of macabre thought. Whatever happened to those souvenirs? Are they in someone's attic right now? Did someone years later pick one up and say, what is this, and just toss it out? Who knows? But that wasn't it. They beat the bodies of Luther and Mary so mercilessly that one of Luther's eyes hung from its socket. And then a newspaper, the Vicksburg Evening Post, reported that the most excruciating form of punishment consisted in the use of a large corkscrew in the hands of some of the mob. The instrument was bored into the flesh of the man and woman, in the arms, legs, and body, and then pulled out, the spirals tearing out big pieces of raw, quivering flesh every time it was withdrawn. 
And finally, the Holberts, who were still alive, were dragged to a fire. They burned Mary first so that Luther could see his beloved killed. And then they burned Luther. The color of compromise is red. So we've seen that the color of compromise is green for the greed of race-based chattel slavery and the oppression of people of color, particularly black people. We've seen that the color of compromise is white for white supremacy. We've seen that the color of compromise is red for the violence and the blood that was spilled and maintenance of greed and white supremacy. And so the question now is what do we do? How do we interrupt the cycle of compromise and complicity? Well, there's much that could be said, but I want to talk about the fierce urgency of now. It comes from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Now, we all remember that part, don't we, about people being judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we love that part. But if you go to the beginning of that speech, King is fiery. He is fierce. He is urgent. And there's no better way to understand that than to hear from King himself. So there's a brief clip we'll listen to. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment, this sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. So that was 1963. And in many ways, we could say that when it comes to racial justice, we still need to respond to the fierce urgency of now. And so the most frequent question I get at events like these is, is what do we do? What are some practical steps? Well, there's a lot that could be said, but what I end the book with is the chapter called The Fierce Urgency of Now, and I lay out a, 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 a principle or a paradigm that I call the arc of racial justice. 
It stands for Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. Before I explain, I want to you to understand that this is not a linear process that we go from step one to step two to step three, but rather these things are all happening at the same time and constantly. In addition, this is not a process that ever ends. You're always going to be learning and growing and adding to your action and your activism. But I think we need to keep these three aspects in conversation and intention with one another in order to effectively make progress on racial justice. And so awareness. This simply means increasing your knowledge about race and racism. There are lots of ways to build your awareness. You sitting here right now is an endeavor and an attempt to build your awareness about race and racial justice. But you can go home right now, and if you have a streaming service, you can stream any number of documentaries and films about this. I recommend Ava DuVernay's When They See Us about the now exonerated Central Park Five. Just Mercy, film that's still in theaters. About activist and criminal justice reformer Brian Stevenson helping to get people wrongly convicted off of death row. There's many ways to build your awareness. But we don't just need big heads. We need big hearts. And that's where relationships come in. All reconciliation is fundamentally relational. When God wanted to reconcile God's self to humanity, God didn't send a TikTok video. God didn't send a tweet. God sent Jesus, a person. Why? Because you can have a relationship with a person. If you want to achieve reconciliation, it has to be with a person. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled not only to God, but to each other as well. And so relationships means that we can we can never circumvent the humanity of this process that we are going to have to learn to love the other and get along with people who have been categorized and separated from us. And we're going to have to go out of our way to foment these relationships. The problem is, especially with a lot of white Christians, that's where they stop. Racism, in the evangelical mind, oftentimes is an individual thing. It's one person not liking someone else. And therefore, the solution is, well, I'm nice to other people. We have coffee together and, and, and pulpit swaps, and, and, and we do these uh, 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 events where we get together and we talk about race. So you see, I don't have a racist bone in my body, and as a matter of fact, some of my best friends are black. <laughs> but there's a problem there Because all the cups of coffee in the world aren't going to do a thing about mass incarceration. All the pulpit swaps in the world aren't going to close the racial wealth gap. All of the conversations that we can have and and, and the, 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 the singing, you know, the more we get together, the happier we'll be. It's not going to do a thing about voter suppression. And so what's needed is a commitment to action. In particular, a commitment to overturning racist policies that create and perpetuate racial inequality. And there's lots of ways you can do this. I recommend getting involved locally. 
When's your next city council meeting? When's the next school board meeting? What community groups are working for justice? It could be on immigration. It could be on criminal justice. It could be on voting rights. It could be on any manner of things. God has pressed on your heart something. And if you don't know it now, just give it a little thought. Something's going to bother you so much that you can't let it go. Get involved there. The arc of racial justice. But here's the thing. When it comes to fighting racism, I don't believe we have a how-to problem. I believe we have a want-to problem. In other words, if I gave you two minutes and a piece of paper or the app where you take notes, whatever, you could probably come up with a series of anti-racist actions. You could even come up with, with things that fit the categories of awareness and relationships and commitment. The problem is not knowing how to fight racism. The problem is Will we fight racism? Are we willing to fight it? Not do we know what to do, it's are we willing to do what's necessary? So a lot of times people will say, you know, if I was alive during the civil rights movement, I would have marched with King. I would have held the picket sign, I would have boycotted, I would have sat in, I would have even gotten arrested for the sake of racial justice. Well, that's all well and good, but brothers and sisters, do you know that the civil rights movement never really ended? There are peaks and there are valleys, but the freedom struggle is never ending. And I believe that in many ways we are in the midst of another wave of the civil rights movement. And if you say that you would have been involved then, then show me that you're involved now. Now is the time. Now is the moment. Now is the fierce urgency of now. And the question is not how to fight racism. The question is, will you fight it? Thank you. Okay, it works. All right, uh, this time around, we are going to have uh, a Q&A. Uh, there is a number up here. It's 813-995-7550. I believe we will also have a mic up here. Are we doing that? For anyone to have a q No? Okay. Well, if someone does want to come up, I can share mics. And uh, we got uh, uh, Pastor Michael Neely from New Millennium Church. All right now. And and some obscure church called Watermark. <laughs> Pastor Tommy Phillips. Okay, so uh, the one of the first questions that we got, and obviously you guys, any of you guys can uh, answer. Um, uh, you did talk a little bit about reparation, uh, and this person's asking, uh, reparation seems like it's much more uh, prevalent in terms of the conversation and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think reparation is a good idea, and if so, 
how can reparation actually be introduced or executed? Yeah. Uh, so I think the first question to ask in regard to reparations is, has an injustice been done? And then if the answer is yes, come the questions about how to and practicality. The problem is there are a lot of people who are still not admitting an injustice has been done or more to the point, they think it's already been rectified through emancipation and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and certain things and actions that have already taken place. But what they fail to reckon with is the financial aspect of all of this oppression. Again, what made race-based chattel slavery so resilient was not only the ideology of white supremacy, but that there was profit to be had. And if that is the case, then we have to reckon with the financial aspects of it. Another way to think about it, reparation simply means repair. And so the question is, how do we begin, particularly as people of faith, to repair the harm, specifically the financial harm, that has been done in the name of racism. And I think there are lots of ways, and the reality is that there's really no established playbook. It has to be this generation of Christians who come together creatively to think of what that might look like. Now, that we, we do have experts who have been studying this. This is not a new conversation, but here's my thing. If we had dealt with this question in 1866, it would have been a lot simpler to deal with. <laughs> Who gets reparations? Oh, yesterday you were enslaved. Here you go. But every generation has kicked the can further and further down the road, so now we're more than a century and a half since that. And now the question is much more muddled and complicated. The question is, what generation is going to interrupt the cycle? What generation is going to say no more? We're going to address this right now. Thank you. Amen. I'm with you. <laughs> Anybody want to add to that? I, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't have anything to add to it. I, you're the, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to answer questions, obviously. I, I have a lot of questions. Um, but uh, I, I actually wanted to bring something up to Michael for a second. Because like, um, I kind of want to get your thoughts on something that I, I witnessed when I was with you one time that I have been kicking around for years in my brain. So 2009, me and you, I believe in 2009, we were at, a long time ago, sorry. We were at a, uh, we're both pastors in the same denomination, Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, I walked in late to one of the sessions at, at our den denominational conference, and you were sitting there, and I sat down with you. And, and a little old man got up and started talking. And I don't remember anything he said other than he referenced the War of Northern Aggression. The, the War of Northern Aggression, he called it. And I was sitting next to you. It's fascinating that you don't remember it, which tells me a lot. Um, and you had, and that was, I mean, I've heard that phrase before, but that was the first time sitting next to you that I heard that phrase. Mm -hmm. And you had this just, you, you looked at me and you went, oh. And uh, I, I was just speechless, just sitting there like, um, is, at this point, I'm forgetting my question because now I'm, I'm wrapped up in like that moment. I, 
is this a normal occurrence even in our own denomination for and Christian communities for you yourself? Well, yeah, I, I'm having a hard time remembering that. Uh, but I give you, it is a, a I don't want to say common, but there have been instances. Uh, for instance, the person shall remain nameless. But I sent uh, a gentleman in my church to be accredited to go through the licensing process in our denomination. And of course you sit in front of several men and they ask you certain questions. And so he's an African American, the gentleman I sent up there. And so this elderly white gentleman who's sitting on this committee, he asked him, can you sing? He said, no, I can't sing. Well, can you dance? This is, this, is, this, is, this is serious. And he says, no, I can't dance or sing. Oh, because I, I thought, he literally said, I thought all you all could dance and sing. Uh, so when he came back and told me what happened, I naturally did not sit on it. Uh, I got on the phone the next day and I called the powers that be and said, what's up with that? What, who is this gentleman? He needs, to, he needs to go. I mean, clearly he needs to go. Uh, and, and so, but, but that led to, to some discussion about the very issue. And so what happened was at the very next conference we had, they were going to bring in a person to shine shoes at the conference. Got no issues, no issues with that. And I said, so I'm thinking, okay, well, why are you all calling me? They said, well, the person we're bringing in is African-American. And we want to make sure that that's not being racially insensitive concerning that at a time, that's what black men were relegated to. My next question was, well, how much are you going to pay this man? <laughs> oh, we're going to pay him $7.50 a day plus tips. I'm like, bring him on. <laughs> Matter of fact, if he can't come, I'll come. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but my point was, there was, there was, because I raised the issue and challenged what happened, there was a consciousness of, of sensitivity on, on, on the powers that be to at least make sure that what we're doing uh, is within the right vein uh, and so I think that's one way of beginning. And I, I want to say something about the reparations. I'll admit, uh, before tonight, Jamar, I was on the fence about reparations. I had never heard it put the way you put it tonight. I'm no longer on the fence. I'm with you, my brother. Hey, amen. amen. I need my 40 acres and my mule. Amen. And, and I don't want to hog the mic and hold the time, but I, I, I want to say this. Last year, I found out uh, through my, my, my biological father who's passing away in Mississippi. Some of my family members went down there to look after him, started going through all kinds of old letters. And we uncovered uh, a truth that shocked me, uh, that my great-great-grandfather 
was white. Now, that didn't shock me because in Mississippi, that shouldn't shock anybody mm -hmm. uh, uh, because of all, you know, because of slavery and issues that were going on. Uh, it wasn't shocking that I had white blood in my family. What was shocking is that he was, his name was Charlie Rosenbaum. Mm. He's Jewish. And so we, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I had a joke, but I'll let it go. Uh, and so, and so I, we, I found a picture of this man. And we actually kind of wore our mustaches the same way. Uh, which is it's really kind of uncanny. My wife looked and she said, wow, you look like him. Oh, wow. Now, this is the thing. He's buried in Beth Israel Cemetery uh, in Kempton County. Uh, and, but he had 400 acres of land. Okay. And he was living with a black woman. The, the Mississippi Register says he was married but there's no way he was married to a black woman. Uh, and during that time, it was illegal, especially in Mississippi. So he's living with one black woman, and he has an affair with another black woman. And they have my great-grandfather, Papa Kutch. And Papa Kutch took uh, uh, the, 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 the name of, he didn't take Charlie Rosenbaum's last name. He took his mother's last name. And I remember going down to Mississippi up until the age of seven or eight years old. We would always go to Papa Kutch's farm. My grandfather and, and a host of other people left Mississippi for obvious reasons, but they had acres and acres and acres and acres of land, and I'm trying to figure out what happened to it, you see? And so when you, when you, the way you express so eloquently tonight about the economic effects of slavery and reparations, that brought my mind back to that, and so I, I'm with you. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, we got a lot of questions, so... Uh, and I think we're paying the babysitters till nine, so we got 40 minutes at least, um, at least for the ones with kids, uh, children. But uh, okay, so this one, uh, I'm, I'm going to group some of these questions together. What are your thoughts on people who say that keeping this topic and discussion of racism alive is the reason uh, that the racism is still an issue? Uh, the second questioner. Uh, ask, aren't you not fomenting racial divisiveness in your teachings? Do you realize you ever mentioned the real solution is Jesus? Um, so how would you respond to something like that? Um, I never thought it made sense to tell the person who said it's raining and blame the rain on them. Understand? So People are out here saying racism exists and it's a problem. They're saying it's raining. And then the people who say, oh, well, you're just perpetuating it by talking about it. It's like blaming me for the rain. I'm just describing the situation. The more you put it off, the harder it is to deal with. Tell me this, if that's your stance. When, when, as a nation, did we reckon with racism? Oh, I know what you'll say. Civil War, emancipation. I know what you'll say, 1954, Brown v. Board. I know what you'll say, 1964, Civil Rights Act. Explain then how it is that a black mama will die three to four times the rate of white women in maternity-related deaths. 
how is it that one of our, our brightest celebrities and, and most respected athletes almost died? Right? Um, talking about Venus Williams. You know? Uh, what was the second question? Because that was a good one, too. Do you realize you ever mentioned the real solution is Jesus? The, oh, okay, so um, <laughs> I, I think there, no, there I is understand this, what right. I understand what they're saying, but the problem is this is a very it's a deflection in my opinion. It's a deflection. So what happens a lot of times, and I've been through this a lot, is people will start to question your credentials in order to undermine your argument. And that looks a lot of different ways. So they can question your actual like, academic or professional credentials, right? So where did you go to school? What theology do you have? Is it up to par, meaning is it what I agree with? And is it from the people I respect, right? Uh, but they'll also question your, your sort of um, your Christian testimony as well. A lot of times, this is what happens with Martin Luther King Jr., right? Even just recently, you had uh, the president of a, of a prominent Southern Baptist seminary um, basically saying that Martin Luther King wasn't saved. He's not in heaven. Hopes that he is, right? Um, problem with that, number one, there's this thing called common grace where I learned in seminary, where it took five years to get this MDiv, so I'm trained, right, if you want that credential, um, that all truth is God's truth. Therefore, we can learn from all different areas and all different disciplines, right? So history is one, where, one place where we can learn about racial justice. And so sometimes I'll preface a talk, depending on the context, and say, this is a talk based on historical research. So if I don't say Jesus every other word, or quote scripture every other word, that doesn't mean I'm not being non-Christian. It means I'm talking from the perspective of history and not theology or preaching a sermon from a biblical text. So it's just a different category, right? So I'm not mad, right, that, 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 that um, you know, if that distinction wasn't clear, to people, but I do want to, to say that both of those questions in their own way skirt around the central issue of, of actual racism. And until we deal with that head on, I mean, there's a million questions that we can ask, right? But until we deal with that head on, I keep having to give talks like this. <laughs> we keep needing books like this, right? Um, so yeah. I, I'm, if I'm upset and it appears that way, it's because those questions slow down the process. Here's the fundamental thing that changed with me in this conversation about racial justice, is when, and I was taught this by various people, particularly black women, it was centering the marginalized and the most oppressed rather than comforting the people who had power. So the standard, in my view, needs to be how do we alleviate the pain 
and come alongside in solidarity with those who are most vulnerable and have the least forms of worldly power. Let that be your litmus test and let that determine the pace of change rather than what's going to offend the people who already have certain forms of power. Right? And when you center the marginalized, that changes this whole conversation about racial justice. So I'll stop there. <laughs> um, if you could, I'd like to push a little, actually a little bit into that because one thing that made it really helpful for me because um, I, I've get, I get asked the same question too uh, and, and people have literally stood here and told me on a Sunday morning, when you, when you talk about, when you talk, all you need to do is talk about the gospel. That's all. Nothing else. And that, but here's the thing. Um, even in your book, you talk about this, and I think it would help if you could, if you could dive into it a little bit. Um, during chattel slavery in America, the gospel by white people was literally edited and presented to the, the human beings that they owned in a way that kept them from understanding that the gospel makes everyone equal. And so the gospel was literally made about to pie in the sky after you die. The kingdom of God is heaven. And the idea that, that, the, that even like this, the idea that the very first thing that happened when Jesus died and the, temp, and the, and the, and the, the veil was rent is a Gentile professes Jesus as Lord. The first thing that happens is racial reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, their own, their own oppressors. And in your book, you go into this and you talk about how you, you, you talk about how the, the gospel was edited and presented to them in a way that kept them from seeing themselves as equals. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some details on that? Because I don't remember all of the. Yeah, and I'll be brief because I know there's a lot of questions. Um, but I think I think the. the you know, there's this fundamental belief on, on the part of some that if you just preach the gospel, all of these problems will go away. Yeah. question is, what gospel are you preaching? So as you were referencing, I mean, there were literal instances of um, the just pre- these These would be today the Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, hold the word of God in high esteem people. And here's what they did. Number one, black people couldn't be members in your church. Number two, if they were allowed in the church, they were in segregated seating. Number three, many times black people couldn't be ordained in the church. And if they could, you could still only preach to other black people, not to white people, right? Um, there's there's a, a, a Bible in a museum that edits out, that literally tore out the pages of anything that talks about liberation or freedom or could be construed that way. Uh, white preachers often preach their, that favorite verse of, of slaveholders and, and uh, advocates of slavery, slaves obey your masters, and applied that directly to enslaved black people. But many people will say, oh, that's in the past, that's ancient history, what about today? Well, the just preach the gospel people, I think, are exercising a sort of racial Gnosticism that makes racism into a purely intellectual thing so that if I believe the right things or say the right things, everything's going to change. These are people who typically push back against any idea of systemic and institutional racism and would push back against that part in the arc that, that says we need to commit to changing racist policies. They would deny that there's even such a thing. And what needs to happen is simply heart change because they're still thinking of race and racism in very individualistic terms. And what I would try to emphasize with folks who want to say this is 
is that racism has manifestations beyond just how you feel about another person, but actually in the way our entire society is structured from where you live to where you go to school to how much money you make to how long you live. All of these things factor into it and can all be traced in some way, shape, or form to ideas and ideologies around race. Um, I, I think we talked about this a little bit uh, in the leadership uh, training that we just had before. Uh, it, it just seems like with social media, it seems like, you know, whether you listen to a peacock or a fox, like it, there's a lot of things that people are sort of in an echo chamber. Like when you, I, I, you know, like I think most racist people or who have prejudice in their heart, they don't think I'm a racist. How can you, how can you, um, talk to an approach and engage in a way, you know, where it, you sort of help them see uh, these things, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> when I was saved, living in Chicago, um, there, was, there was a white gentleman who was a somewhat of a mentor, became a good friend. And he gave me a Bible. It was a Schofield Bible. I mean, one of those big, prepare to meet thy maker black Bibles, you know. <laughs> like, you look holy carrying this thing. And I deeply appreciated the gift. And I was studying that Bible and preaching from that Bible. But then I began to read the book of Genesis and, Scho and, what, and Schofield's notes. And I was in shock that Schofield believed that blacks were cursed. Uh, the, the infamous curse of Ham, which was also used to keep people in slavery. So if you're cursed and you are predestined by God to be a servant, then why wouldn't you be a slave? And so when I went to him, when I found this out, and then I found out that several of these other churches that I was preaching in, they all had Schofield Bibles. But, but they invited me to preach, but they have Schofield Bibles. So I'm thinking, so do these people think that I am inferior mm. in some way? And so I began to, to challenge them on, on, on what, what they say, what, what they preach, but what they say they believe. And without a one, every single one of them told me they believed that black people were cursed, but that there were certain exceptions. Huh? Now, they, they told me this in a very calm way, and I'm sitting here like, you can calmly look me in the eye and say that? And so, my, to, to, again... I'm about education and constant dialogue uh, without uh, putting what I call false guilt on people, but at the same time, forcing people to deal with an issue because racism is sin. And so we never get a complaint about dealing with any other sin. Nobody says that when you deal with adultery, fornication, aren't you, aren't you keeping the problem going? That's right. Come on. Come on. Say that. Nobody ever says that. That's right. You see? And so I believe that 
the Bible condemns racism. Racism is sin, and it's all around us. And so to ignore it is to ignore what the Bible says to challenge sin, especially in the body of Christ. So in terms of reaching people, I intentionally engage people in a way that I hope that we can dialogue without condemning one another. I, 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 I compare it to premarital counseling. And when I counsel as somebody that comes to premarital counseling, I dig into their past. I want to know what their childhood was like. I want to know what their mother and father were like. I want to know what kind of healthy relationships were. Well, why are you dragging up the past? Because I want to understand why you view things the way you view and the lenses that you're looking at things through. And so it's the same way with this kind of conversation. People need to understand why we view things the way we do. Uh, through the, we're looking at, we look at all, we all look at things through the lenses of our own life experience and the things we've been taught and exposed to. So if we really want to engage uh, one another about this issue, then we need to, we need to have, have conversations and allow people to be, feel free to speak without being condemned, but to be challenged about their viewpoint. I feel like I need to say a word about black rage. Um, so this is not a disagree, this is add-on. I, I really think, I mean, black anger at racism has been pathologized. By that I mean in sort of broad society, and particularly within Christian circles, any expression that black people have of anger at the racism and oppression that not only we have experienced in the past, but continue to experience in the present, is met with some sort of version of, well, that's not Christian. But I believe in this thing called righteous anger. It's an anger at injustice. And even in this conversation, I'm checking myself because I hear these questions and I get angry because I know that to have these conversations again and again means that people are still being hurt. There are people in our churches right now who, because of their color and their culture, are being excluded and marginalized and hurt. There are also people who are being physically hurt. So... If you think of mass incarceration, for instance, is disproportionately black and brown people and poor people who are caught up in this system, which is toe up from the floor in many ways, right? And I was just saying before, I've been a teaching assistant for three semesters in penitentiaries in Mississippi, including Mississippi State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Parchment Farm, which was built as a version of a plantation in 1901, uh, 10 inmates have died in the past several months, right? And so when we have these conversations about, well, you didn't mention Jesus, or uh, you talking about racism is only perpetuating the problem, I'm thinking about these people inside our prisons, some of which are for-profit, so we're still in this chattel principle. Um, and I'm thinking, how can, we, how can we help that? How can we get them out of this situation? How can we demonstrate solidarity and use the assets that we have to help other people, which the Bible calls loving your neighbor, right? So anyway, in the midst of all of that, 
I think there is rage and there is anger. Not that should consume someone else in your rage, but that also shouldn't be circumscribed and categorized as non-Christian, right? As, as, as if there is no justification for the outrage. There is. And only when you get as upset as the people who are victimized will you actually be an asset and an advocate in this journey of racial justice. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of rage in the Bible, and I, th I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, um, that Bible was written by people who were oppressed, for people who were oppressed. And it's very difficult to see it because it's like Bible is for the dominant, for us, for, you know, whoever is the, at the top. Um, I have another question. Uh, how can a predominantly white church foster diversity, particularly when it's a largely benefit from gentrification? Okay. <laughs> a lot of good questions. Yes. Yeah, sure. How can a predominantly white church foster diversity, particularly when it largely benefits from gentrification? Sounds relevant. It's a good question. <laughs> I don't think there's an easy answer, except to be intentional. Uh, I don't have an ABC formula for you. I just think you have to be intentional. And as I mentioned earlier in our session, I find it interesting that outside of Dr. Tony Evans and Crawford LaRitz and maybe one or two other African-American pastors who... Those are multicultural churches that I mentioned just now, Multi pastors of multicultural churches who are African-American. They are a rare breed. Most multicultural churches are led by Caucasian people. Even the church that was here years ago, and I'll call it by name, Church Without Walls, which was 80% African-American, the leadership was predominantly white. The main leaders were white. And I won't even talk about how I feel about what they were preaching. But anyway. Um, but my point is, my point is, it has to be intentional. And see, this is why we still need to have the conversation. Because that says something to me. That most multicultural churches are, are, are led by uh, white leadership. There has to be something in the subconscious, something inherent that says African-American people or people or even people of color can follow white leadership, but it can't be reversed to where uh, white Christians can follow African-American leadership. And the only way you can do that the only way you can do that is to, to, is to make sure that race is not an issue. And so that's another reason why we have these discussions. So I think uh, uh, white churches can do what we're doing tonight. I, I think this is fantastic. This is great. I mean, the place is packed. 
so I, I think this is one thing that we can do, at least start dialogues and, and, and have real conversations and be intentional about how we can do what Jesus said. The world will know we are his disciples by the real love, not the superficial love, but the real love that we have for one another. And you cannot <clears throat> have real love for one another if you don't have real conversations about issues like this. It's superficial, and people can spot superficiality. People who are looking for truth, uh, a genuineness, and authenticity can spot superficial people just hanging out to look good. And and I don't know. And even though y'all look good, I don't want to just hang out with you because you look good. I want us to hang out because we love one another uh, the way God intended us to love. And that, I think, by having this kind of discussion and being intentional about it, we can actually win more people to Christ. And I, I would just add on to that and say we should be very careful not to limit our efforts to Sunday morning uh, because racial justice is not just what happens a couple of hours one day a week, but it's what happens Monday through Saturday and throughout the rest of our lives as well. Um, and so I think that actually sort of can, can free us a little bit. This is not to let anyone off the hook. We need to continually be intentional about who's included and excluded and what messages we're sending about inclusion and exclusion. But it also says that the, the, that the end all be all is not the composition of the congregation on Sunday. Um, that in, 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 in a biblical sense that, that, that mere sort of aesthetic diversity is too small a goal. That, that, that a better goal might be solidarity. And a better goal might be advocacy, right? And so, you know, I just think there's a long, there's a short, there's a short-term view and a long-term view. In the short term, you may labor for years for diversity and never see the flowering that you hope or the fruit that you hope. In the long term, it may come because this intentionality over a period, it took a long time to get our churches this segregated. It's gonna take a long time. To bring people together. And so we ought to have a holy patience about that, even as we work diligently and intentionally. But in the meantime, there's all sorts of ways that we can be advocates and, and demonstrate solidarity, right? So what does it mean for the church as a church to show up at a court hearing, to show up uh, at a march, to show up through, you know, as we talk about the, 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 the element of, of, of money and wealth in this, to show up for black churches or other churches um, uh, with financial support, right? I think there are a lot of ways to demonstrate that you are pushing for racial justice even if the composition on Sunday doesn't yet look like what you want it to look like. Hey, all right. Um, I, I would also, as an example, I mean, the book of Romans is written to answer this question. Um, contrary to popular belief, the book of Romans was not written to tell people how to get saved. It was written to a church full of Christians who already followed Jesus with everything that they had. Um, and there are two groups of people in this church. There are fundamentalist right-wing Jews who are very poor, who have been exiled, who are returning from exile. There are very liberal Gentile Romans who are very wealthy and very prominent. 
different cultures entirely, one oppressed, one not. And these Jews are coming back into the church after being exiled. And Paul writes to them in the book of Romans in order to instruct them on how to put their differences aside because these Jewish believers think the Roman Gentiles are disgusting in the way that they live and that they need to become more like the Jews. They need to get circumcised and, 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 and um, obey all the laws and all the dietary restrictions. And the Gentiles um, are declaring, we've been made free by Christ, and so they're trying to put us in bondage and chains by, by their laws. And Paul's big message to them, by the time you get... Uh, I'm a, we Okay. So we kind of, when we do Romans in the next year or so, whenever we get there, we're in Acts or no. We're going to do it backwards because the whole idea is the book ends at chapter 8. You start at 12 through 16. You understand who they are. You go to 9 through 11. And what Paul does in 9 through 11 is he tells the story of the Jewish people. And he says, your entire history has led up to the point where you are, it was designed and by God so that you would bring in Gentiles. It's the whole point of Israel's story. So that the Gentiles could be saved. And then he turns to the Gentiles and he says, oh, by the way, their entire story is centered on you. So you owe your salvation to them. You owe your entire story and identity to them. And then he's sort of in chapter 8. You go back to 1, uh, one through 5, and then, and then you finally get to 6 through 8. And you have to ask the question by the time you get to chapter 8. He kind of lays it out like, what are you willing to give up in order to stay in community with these people? And that is how he believes this can be solved. That's what Paul believes can happen. That's the only way Paul believes this can, this can work, is if you ask the question, if God did all that to bring us in, and if God did all of this to bring you in, what am I willing to give up to stay in relationship with you? And I think that may be what Paul is doing there. What, what power, what privilege, what wealth, what riches? Are you willing to give up to stay in community with these people? Because this is what Jesus did sitting on high on the throne, and he enters into the world, gives up everything, all of his power, all of his privilege, born in a manger so that he can enter into relationship with you. In essence, the, that's the gospel, and that is what Paul believes can fix the church. Mm. And that's it. Mm. He doesn't offer any other answers. Um, you mentioned this in your uh, presentation tonight, uh, Jamar, um, that other nations like Germany uh, have sort of publicly, I mean, all said they committed wrong and whatnot, uh, you know, and some, some other uh, countries and other nations as well, uh, including South Africa, South Africa, Truth and Reconciliation, you mentioned that as a little bit. Why do you think in the USA and American church have been more resistant? What makes us unique in that sense? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I was saying earlier that uh, I believe it was Eddie S. Glaude, who's a professor of religion at Princeton, was saying that the U.S. is not unique in its racism or the fact that it has it, but it perhaps is unique in, in its failure to admit it and own up to it. Um, Brian Stevenson, who I mentioned before, uh, is uh, head of the Equal Justice Initiative, and he says... The North won the Civil War, but the South won the Narrative War. Uh, in my town, in, in the rural Delta, I drove past a house just a couple of days ago that had uh, an American flag, and then on the opposite corner had the Confederate flag. And it stuck out to me because it was new. And I'm like, this is Black History Month 2020, and you're putting up a brand new Confederate flag. And so all of this goes back to why hasn't 
I, I think part of it's tied still to money, um, that it is still profitable. The U.S. is the wealthiest nation in the history of the planet, right? And it got there in large part due to enslaved labor. In order to maintain its wealth, there continues to be exploitation, particularly along racial and class lines. So there's a profitability, I think, to both denying racism and perpetuating it in its modern forms, which is often more subtle but no less damaging. Um, other than that, there was a lot of compromise and complicity. So the Civil War was entered into reluctantly, even by Northerners, and a lot of people could be anti-slavery but still racist and pro-segregation, which is what happened. Um, Reconstruction was a period from about 1865 to 1877. It was this bright moment of possibility for black people. Um, in record numbers and for the first time, black people entered political office, uh, they started their own businesses, they voted, all of these things. Well, sort of the political end of Reconstruction was in 1877 with the Tilden Hayes Compromise. You notice that word compromise. And what happened was Hayes, who was a northerner and a, a union guy, was it was a very close election, and uh, politicians in the South agreed to give him the presidency if he would withdraw federal troops from the South, which meant that local Southerners regained control in the South, and it was the start of what we now know as Jim Crow. That's another compromise, and I think throughout history there have been all these compromises. FDR, in order to get some of the New Deal reforms passed, had to compromise with uh, racist politicians who said, okay, we'll let you pass this law, but there are gonna be two groups that are excluded from the benefits of the New Deal, uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers. In other words, the help, which is black people, and sharecroppers, which is largely black people. And that was another compromise. And you can see this over and over and over again, not just at a federal level, but at a local level and in the church, for sure, where there's been compromise after compromise because it's been too costly to really stand up for racial justice. Um, I could tell you story after story, but know this, oftentimes the line of what churches or institutions are willing to do is where their constituents withdraw their money. Whether it is a college or university or a seminary or a church, as soon as you tick off the people who write big checks, that's all of a sudden we slow down and we back off. Um, it's not all about that, but a lot of times you can, you can follow the money and see where this goes. Um, so I think there are a lot of factors of why we haven't done it yet. Um, but even if a nation is we don't do it, there's no excuse for the church not doing it. Uh, I've read uh, part of your book, saw the portions, uh, and spoke of revolts that slaves had against their landowners. Watermark has been talking about nonviolence, but reading your book makes me so mad. I wish violence to be done to protect those who were enslaved. How do we reconcile righteous anger that may or may not include violence in light of having no violence recourse uh, for the nonviolence of God? Um, and, and adding to that, there was another questioner uh, somewhat related. How do we keep from giving up? 
Yeah, I, I do believe in righteous anger. As a matter of fact, when, when, I, when I first started reading your book, uh, I realized that even I didn't know some things about black history. Uh, and, and when you were telling the story about, um, uh, about the, 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 the couple that was... Mary Holbrook. Yep. Yeah, I, I, had to, I had to put the book down uh, because I, was, I found myself, my chest getting heavy. I found myself using my sanctified imagination and moving into that situation. Uh, matter of fact, I, I was just using Harriet Tubman Sunday as an illustration uh, about action uh, and how and how she believed that in order to go, to be, when she became free, she went back and she thought it was her duty to go back. And she had to use force uh, and shoot some folk um, to, to, to seek freedom. But I, but I think today, uh, you, you, righteous anger, the Bible says, be angry but sin not. Yeah. So I think we, 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 we need to uh, uh, dissipate this thought that if I'm angry, I'm in sin. Because there are things I ought to be angry about. And when I see that kind of, of, of injustice uh, uh, and, and racial injustice, uh, I get angry. I was working at Time Magazine in Chicago, and uh, I was training everybody that came through my department. Every person I trained that came through my department was, called, was white. And so after I got through training them, they, they, got, they, they were getting promotions after promotion. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, something wrong with this picture. So I went, I went to the office, I went to the manager, and I raised Kane. And she pulls out my file, and there's all kinds of stuff in my file that I didn't even know about. The complete total lies about my integrity and so forth. And, and, but I didn't stop. I, I rallied the troops together, and we marched into our office, and we demanded an audience, and everybody got scared but me. And they all left. But I stayed because I've learned that I'm going to deal with the issue of injustice. And so, and so I demanded, I demanded that this stuff be taken out of my file. And I demanded that the next promotion came up, that I should get it. And I got it. Praise the Lord. Wow. And what's interesting is that when we relocated to Florida, I, that's how I relocated to Florida in 87 because I was working for Time Magazine. They relocated to Florida in 1987, became Time Customer Service. And so I got a promotion as, as a manager. And isn't it interesting that the same person that I was working under, I was now her equal when we got to Florida. Mm -hmm. I thought it was amazing. And then she pretended that we were friends. We were never friends. But I never got angry with her. I treated her as an equal. Last year... I did a funeral for Aiken's Funeral Home. I do a lot of funerals. And I did a funeral. And her, this lady's daughter and some other people that were in that department were at this funeral. And they came up to me afterwards and she looks at me and she says, don't you remember me? I said, you look for me. She said, I'm Loretta's daughter. And she fell in my arms and cried and thanked me for the words that I said over her friend. And so my point is, 
you, 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 it's nothing wrong with righteous anger, but you deal with righteous anger with action, but ultimately you deal with it with love. Because love, it is the goodness of the Lord that leads people to repentance. And it is love and action that will draw other people to Christ and force them to see the issues in their own heart. At the same time, and I'm speaking for Mike Neely, I believe in self-defense. If you put your hands on me, I'm putting my hands on you. I'm done. Uh, I, that probably came from one of the uh, watermark people because I, I'm a, I'm I'm a pacifist. That's what I am. Um, and uh, I love you anyway. dude, you can punch me anytime. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, he touched on something there. It's anger still, as a Christian, is centered on love. Um, and I, I get asked the question: What do you do if somebody's Coming violent at you, your family, your house, that's always the go-to. What about they're killing your family? Uh, instantly. Oh, I don't, I won't kill people. What if they're killing your family, though? Um, in general, I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's like the song we sang. When you see, when you look at somebody and you see your brother, it, it changes things. And so I like, I have this exercise where I, I like to think of evil people as like, I have two brothers. What if that was literally my brother in front of me? My response would be different. There would still be an anger, and there would still be an attempt to, with everything I have, to stop it. But he's not a stranger, and I have deep-seated love for him. That changes your response from destroying an other, an evil other, to... Um, somehow intervening in love for my brother. And that's, that's what the Christians were doing. That's why when Paul sent Philem uh, Onesimus back to Philemon, he said, I want you to receive him back, but not as a slave, but as your brother. And the word he uses is Adelphoi, which is not like brother like my brother's in the dorm. It's literally sibling. Take him back as your sibling. And, it, and you can no longer... Treat him like you did. All right. We're at 8.59, but <laughs> I would like Jamar to have a last word. Um, th this is a uh, just very quick question, hopefully. Uh, how can I, as a white person, advocate and be actively involved while avoiding the white savior complex perception? 30 seconds. <laughs> For, for those who are parents, uh, you guys feel free to... <laughs> I feel so bad saying this. If you can go and get your kids. <laughs> They're your children. Yes. The future. Uh, I don't think there's a, a way around the white savior complex. You have to go through it. Meaning, you have to make mistakes and learn from it. Um, in, 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 in a way... Uh, I went through this, I was a middle school teacher coming from the Chicago area to the Delta, which is uh, 
the county where I live is the fourth poorest county in the country. And I was serving students who were in generational poverty and all the issues that come with it. And uh, I was down there as a teacher and I'm college educated and all this stuff. And even, even though I'm black, I come in in my early 20s with this mentality that I'm going to do something to help these people, right? It took me mentors who were from that area telling me hard truths. It took me many conversations getting chewed out by parents who saw my arrogance and put me in my place. And it took me a lot of prayer and patience with myself to finally realize they had more to teach me than I had to teach them. Mm. To finally realize that assets come in different forms, not just education or money, but in relationships and wisdom mm. and all kinds of qualitative and intangible things. And once I started to realize that, I think I began to be more humble and wise, although it's still a constant process. So I think what it is fundamentally is a matter of faith over fear and courage over compromise, that you need to have the courage to enter into a situation knowing that you will do so imperfectly, but trusting the grace of God that, that, that honors that commitment and being humble enough to learn from the people who you want to advocate with and demonstrate solidarity with. Um, but I think the fundamental thing is that there's probably no way you can completely avoid it. But you have to have the courage to go through it, learn from it, and get better. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I would like to ask uh, Pastor Nulu to pray and end with closing. But uh, can we just get a round of applause for uh, everyone here? Shall we? A gracious God and loving Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your presence here tonight as we engaged in a difficult and yet needful discussion. We would ask you, Lord, to pour your wisdom into all of us. And your word says if we need wisdom, ask you and you would give it liberally. And so we ask you for wisdom, Lord. We ask you to, as the psalmist said, search our hearts, O God, concerning this issue tonight and where we fall short. Help us to confess it and help us to take actions to correct it. Help us to be intentional tonight. But more than that, Lord, help us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that we might love one another because your word says love covers a multitude of sins. We would ask you, Lord, as we leave this place to see every single person home safely without harm, we want to pray a special prayer of blessing over Jamar tonight, Lord that you would anoint him, that you would fill him with power and with courage 
and that he would be like Joshua and go forth and conquer all the land you would have him to conquer. Be with him, and on the days when he's discouraged, remind him that you called him and that your promise is true. You will never leave him nor forsake him. We thank you. We praise you. We give you the honor and the glory. In the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, go in boldness. Go in peace. Go in grace. God bless. Good night.